as we bathe in the truth of the fact that our God never lets go. We realize that His presence is among us and that He is here. And that for those of us that are His children, He has promised to keep us until the end. We also realize that we live in a broken world that is in desperate need of Jesus. I've been here for 10 years now, and it seems like way too often in that 10 years, we've had to address or talk about something very serious happening in our country, in our nation, in our world. And today is one of those days. In a moment, we're going to open God's Word, and we're going to talk about God's freeing us from guilt, and then we're going to look at glorious truths from the book of Hebrews. But to stand here today and not acknowledge that there are some bigger issues happening in the world around us would be to not do justice to our witness in the world. What is happening in Charlottesville, what is happening east of here, for some reason still needs to be declared in places like this that any form of racism is an abomination unto the Lord. And it's particularly heinous what is happening there because there is a segment of the white supremacy movement that is attempting to co-opt the language of Christianity and claim the name of Jesus in their midst. And that is flat out evil. And as we gather together as God's people, I think it's incumbent upon us to pray for the reconciliation of our nation, pray for the reconciliation of God's people, And pray for the reconciliation of a sinful world to a loving God. And so today, as we begin to think about God's word in our lives, I want us to begin by praying for the situation that is happening there. And that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, that we would be a demonstration to the world around us of the importance of Jesus. And how he brings divisions And breaks down the walls and brings the divided together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are thankful for you. We're thankful for the reality of the fact that you have divided sin from us in the death of your son. And that you are the greatest unifier that has ever existed. That through the blood of the cross... Jesus Christ's death, you have saved us from our sin and you have brought together what seemed could not be brought together. And Lord, we pray that even today as we stand here in a nation that is troubled, that is hurting, that is divided, Lord, that your light, that your hope, that your love would so permeate this country. That your people here would be a shining example of what it means to love one another. And that together, as your people, from all nations, tribes, tongues, languages, that we would declare the glory and the goodness of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. If you've got... 
a copy of God's Word, I want you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. If you don't, you don't have one with you, either maybe you've got one on your phone, you can open that up, or in front of you is a Bible that you can pick up and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Let me just say this, if you're here today and you don't have a Bible at all, you don't have one at home that you can pick up and read, that Bible in the pew in front of you, if that would be helpful to you, you can take that with you. Um, it's the version that I use, what I preach out of, and you can read along with me today. Hebrews chapter 9. Now it's no, not easy to translate transition from the seriousness of a topic we just talked about to what I'm about to talk about. So I'm not going to try to do it skillfully. I'm just going to tell you. We're going to talk about, at the beginning today, um, one of my favorite things in the world. All right? And that is ice cream. How many of you are ice cream fans out there? Let me see your hands. All right, we got some ice cream. We got Dean Smith right here. If we would have had ice cream under the good, better, best, that'd have been good. All right, we're worried about a little melting or something there. Well, here's what I want to talk about today. Um, I want to, to. We're going to have a little test here at the beginning. I'm going to test your knowledge of ice cream because I want to know what you think is the best-selling pint of ice cream in America. So here are four major brands on the screen, and I want you to think about it for a minute. I'm going to ask for a vote in just a second. The bet, the company that sells the most pints of ice cream in America are. Now here, I'll give you the choices here. Some of you may not be able, I'm not going to ask your age or if you can see or not, I'll tell you what they are, okay? So we have Briars up here. This is the natural vanilla, and I'm not talking about the flavor, I'm talking about overall company. So Briars, um, you can find in your grocery stores around here. Um, next to that's Ben and Jerry's. Uh, this is one of their, fa- their most uh, famous flavors. This is the Tonight Dove, Jimmy Fallon's flavor. All right, they're from Vermont. Very fair trade. Only the best ingredients. Then you've got Hagen Doss, which I think is German for really good. Well, I'm not sure, but it's Hagen Doss ice cream, Belgian chocolate. Um, and so you see there. And then you've got um, Jesus' favorite, which is Bluebell. Ice cream. All right. If you're not, if you're new here, that's a joke that's been around for a while. All right. So Bluebell ice cream. This is their chocolate chip cookie dough, which is phenomenal. All right. So pints of ice cream. Who do you think sells the most? All right. So here we're going to take a vote on it. How many of you think it's Briars? All right. Let me see Briars out there. Okay. I see you. All right. I'm keeping track. I got it in my mind. All right. Ben and Jerry's. How many of you think it's Ben and Jerry's? All right. We got some, uh, Cherry Garcia fans out there, all right. How about Hagen Doss, right? Hagen Doss. We got two or three. Those are people that have actually had Hagen Doss because it is phenomenal, all right. And then Bluebell. How many of you think it's Bluebell, right? All right, we got some Bluebell fans out there. Okay, so here we go. I'm going to tell you, we're going to eliminate them, all right? It's not Briars. Uh, Justin's pretty happy about that, all right? Even though they use natural vanilla and they've been doing quality since 1866, it's not Briars, all right? It's not Haagen-Dazs, because people think that's too fancy. They're not going to buy that, all right? It's not Ben and Jerry's, the Tonight Dough, and it's not Bluebell. See, it's a trick question, because it's none of these. Now, until recently, I know you all hate me right now, that's all right. Until recently, it was Briars and Ben and Jerry's were the top two, and had been for years. But recently, there's a newcomer. The company's only four or five years old. And it is now, as of a month ago, sells the most pints of ice cream of anyone in America. Now, before we put it up on the screen, anybody want to guess what it is? I heard some of my people in the first time, you know what this is. It is Halo Top. 
How many of you have had Halo Top ice cream out there, all right? Now, here's the thing. Halo Top, how many of you don't, have never had Halo Top out there? You don't have a, how many of you don't have a clue what it is, all right? Halo Top ice cream saw its sales in 2016 increase by 2,500%. Now, I don't have an MBA, but that's pretty good business right there, all right? They now sold, they sold 66 million last year. And they have not put a traditional ad in anywhere. No newspaper, no television, nothing. They do it all through viral posts on Facebook and Instagram. Now here's what's crazy. Now, I mean, you say, oh yeah, that's a big deal. That's a big deal in the business world that they've become the top selling pint of ice cream through no traditional advertising. So here's the question. Those of you that hey, Halo Top can probably tell us this. Why has it suddenly become the most popular ice cream in America? Low calorie, Low calorie right? So, for Halo, a serving of ice cream is 60 to 90 calories. For Ben and Jerry's, 240 to 360 calories. But let's be honest. Nobody's eating a single serving of ice cream. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord today? All right. So for a pint of ice cream, Halo, well, just so you know, Ben and Jerry's is over a thousand calories per pint. Halo top is for this one, 280. And they give it, the phrase that they use is guilt-free ice cream. They want you to be able to eat all the ice cream you want and not feel guilty about it. Now, I want to make a confession. I've never had Halo Top in my life, but I'm about to. Because I just so happen to have some here, and I didn't know if it was good or not. Is Is it good? Is it good? All right. And I just happen to have a spoon in my uh, pants here. <laughs> it just happened to be there. And it's not a normal spoon because apparently in the office all we have are serving spoons. And so uh, I'm going to dig right. Oh, it's kind of soft. That's all right. So here's the thing. I can eat this. Well, that's good. That's really good. Like, y'all, do, y'all talk among yourselves for a few minutes, all right? Because I know I feel guilty about this because I can eat all I want to eat of it. And I don't have any calories. I don't have to leave insulin for that. All right. So here's the deal. The reason, I'm going to put it up so it doesn't melt all over everywhere. The reason it's become a big deal is because it offers guilt-free. And people are looking for guilt-free. I mean, isn't that kind of the dream of heaven? You can go eat whatever you want to eat. You ain't got calories. You can load up on the steak and baked potatoes and... Ice cream and chocolate cake and you just kind of eat. Now, if, if that's your only idea of heaven, then you're way off of what heaven really is. But the idea is, I want to eat and not worry about it. It speaks to a deeper human emotion. Listen to what this quote is. I think this is interesting. This is from an Orange Theory fitness coach about Halo Top. She saw a post on Instagram and went and bought a, um, a pint. Went on a rampage to find the other flavors. By the way, those Halo Top fans out there, in research I discovered they released like eight new flavors two days ago. All right? Some of you are now Googling that. Don't Google it now, all right? And she says, 
It takes the bad feeling out of doing something I love. It takes the guilt out. This speaks to a d- deeper human emotion that we all deal with in some way, in some form, in some fashion throughout our years. And that's guilt. One of the central problems that Christianity claims to deal with is the guilt of our souls. The gospel, in fact, is this whole process of we were guilty, Christ dealt with it. In our lives, we know what guilt looks like. In fact, uh, people that are counselors talk about two different kinds of guilt. There's overt guilt, when you know you've done something wrong. When you know that you've done it, when you've thought about doing it, when you did something and you know it was wrong. A sexual sin that you've committed, or maybe getting ahead in life by cheating at school, or business, or with the IRS, or maybe you know you've been a bad parent, or a bad sibling, or a bad spouse, and you feel guilty about how you were to that person. Sometimes you can resolve the issue, you can ask for forgiveness, you can make restitution, and you can move on, but sometimes that guilt lingers because you can't anymore. The relationship's permanently destroyed, or the person is gone and you can't say you're sorry. Maybe with a a child, or a parent, or a friend, or a sibling, you did something awful and then they passed on and you can't say to them you're sorry that. Now even sometimes when you deal with the guilt, there's this other emotion that's tied to guilt. It's not the same thing, but it's tied to it. The shame that still lingers when you think I've at least made retribution for my guilt. Shame is this idea of what kind of person am I that would do something like that? Or how bad can I be? From the beginning, guilt and shame have been linked together. You think about Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are tempted to sin and they do sin. It says that God comes walking in the garden. They are guilty. They have sinned. They have violated God's law. And then it says, and they were ashamed because they were naked. And sometimes guilt and shame are especially bad if no one knows about it. And you're holding on to it and you're... Doing it in secret or you've had this secret for a long time. We know what that is. This overt guilt. But there's this secondary kind of guilt that is also present in all of our lives whether we realize it or not. And it's this sense that we all have done something wrong against a higher authority and we don't know how to do anything about it. Charles Colson several years ago said that every person has to answer a few basic questions in their lives that, have, that, that to help to shape how we view the world and how we live our lives. And he says, the first question we have to ask is, how did we get here? How did we get here? How did we all end up in this place? How did we get, how is life here? How is the earth here? How is it the perfect place for us? How am I here? How did we get here? And he said, the second question we have to answer is, what happened to mess it all up? And I don't know if you noticed this, but the world is messed up. You just think about the news this week. I could do this every week, but the news this week seems especially troubling. It's happening in Charlottesville. The fact that it seems that we're on the brink of the possibility of nuclear war. A girl in Goodlettsville killed in her own home. I mean, the world is messed up, Amen. It's a, it, something has gone wrong. And Charles Colson says, you gotta ask the question, what went wrong? And then the third question is, can we fix it? And there's this sense within all of us, that's on a global scale, but there's this sense in all of us that we wanna know why we're here, we wanna know what happened in our lives to mess everything up, and then we want, we want to figure out, can we fix it? Tom Brady celebrated a birthday in the last few days, and everybody's talking about how long is he gonna be able to play quarterback. Most fascinating quotes Tom Brady ever had was after he won his third Super Bowl, they asked him about the high of it. 
And he said, I don't know, I thought it would mean more than it did, but it seems that it's never enough, that I need something more. Forbes magazine recently wrote about what guilt looks like and says that there are signs all over the country that we're suffering from guilt and don't even know it. Close relationships don't last, chronically tired and distracted, you joke at others' expense, you respond dramatically to other people's criticism, you're paranoid about what everyone else thinks because you project how you feel about yourself on everyone else's thoughts and you sabotage your own efforts at a good life. And the question becomes, how do we, according to scripture, deal effectively with our guilt? Chapter 9 of Hebrews, starting in verse 1. He's talking about the difference between the two covenants, and we're going to look at this quickly today. Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary for a tabernacle was set up. And in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves. Now, he's saying, listen, the old covenant, we had a tabernacle set up. And in the tabernacle, you walked in. And one of the things you saw in the holy place was the lampstand. You saw a table with some bread on it. And he said, those are symbols of God's presence. The light was continually lit to symbolize the presence of God and God's prov- providence for us. That he has provided for us, his provision for us. That he is providing bread for us. And so he's, those two things are in the temple. Next verse. Behind the second curtain was a holy place, the most holy place. A gold altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, hair and staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So he says, then inside of that, inside the holy place, was a holier place, the holy of holies. There was a stand in front of it that had prayers symbolized through the burning of incense going up to God all day long. But it also was a barrier to not get inside. There was this curtain that was there that was elaborately constructed, woven together so thickly that you could not see in it and could not see out of it. It created this perimeter around the most holy place that no one could get into uh, without extreme effort and as they did they would go into a dark place sealed off from God's presence in the midst of it inside of that was the ark of the covenant we all have seen a picture of the ark of the covenant and on that were the angels wings that were over the edge of it and in the middle of their wings right at the center was the mercy seat where provision was made and an offering was made for the people's sins he says they can't go into more details about those things right now basically saying you already know all that stuff I want to move on Next one. With these things prepared like this, the priest entered the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. So every day the priest would go into that outer court and they would perform the ministry. They would provide a sacrifice. They would work through all the things that had to be done, the ritual that had to be done for the people of God to have their sins forgiven. He goes on to say, but the high priest... Alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. One day, one man, a year, got to go into the most holy place. When you read the Hebrew history, it's amazing all that went into preparation for that man. For the week before, he would not be around anybody else. He was in isolation, so he wouldn't touch anything unclean. He wouldn't eat anything unclean. They would pass clean food to him. He would wash everything again and then eat. That on the day that it happened, Yom Kippur, the one day a year that the one man went into the place where God's presence was held, he would walk in fully prepared. He would first walk, he would shower himself, put on a brand new garment, never been worn before, go in, make atonement, sacrifice for his sins, walk out, 
Take off that brand new garment he had just put on. Wash completely again. Bathe completely again. Put on a brand new one that had never been worn before. Walk back in. Make a sacrifice for the sins of the priest. Walk back out. Take that off. Put a shower again. Bath again. Go over again. Wash again. Put on an ephod again with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes on his heart. Walk back in and make atonement sacrifice for the sins of the people outside. He would walk outside. They had a goat out there. They had sacrifice one. One they would lay their hands on. Put the sins of the people on the goat. They would send the goat out of the camp to symbolize that their sins had finally been forgiven. And then a few minutes later, after all that had been done, they were back in the same place they had been before because somebody in the group had sinned. He did all this with an audience, by the way. Everybody was out there watching as there was a sheet up. He would bathe on the other side of the sheet. But they were making sure that he did it right because their sin forgiveness was dependent upon that man, the high priest. He does that once a year, never without blood. For the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. And while all those preparations went into all those movements, into all that time, the problem was that it wasn't sufficient. Verse 9 says this, this is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. What it basically says there is, the problem with the previous system was that it was limited access and limited effectiveness. You had to do it again and again and again and again and again and again. There was no provision for premeditated or intentional sins. And if I were to ask you the question, you were honest in your heart today, and I said, how many of you in this room have committed multiple sins intentionally? You knew it was happening, and you sinned anyways. Hands would go up all over this room, and if you didn't raise your hand, that would be one. Like, we've all done it. There's no provision for that. And there's no change in us. The old system could not perfect the conscience, remove the guilt, or change the heart. And then verse 11 uses one of the greatest words in the English language. It's a small little word in the original language. It's properly translated in the English, and it's beautiful. Verse 11 starts with the word, but. It was ineffective. It could not remove your guilt. It could not do anything about the heart of who you were. But. Then the rest of those verses say this. But Christ has appeared as a high priest. That's a good place for an amen or a woohoo or a woo. I've been saving that up for 10 years, all right? Just waiting. But Christ has appeared as the high priest. Oh, that was sad. But Christ has appeared as a high priest. Of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not one made with hands, not one that we can see on this earth. I'm talking about a heavenly one. I'm talking about a spiritual one. He entered. Christ entered the most holy place. This wasn't a human high priest. This was Christ. This was God Almighty. He entered the most holy place once, once for all time. It doesn't have to be done again and again and again and again. It is once, not by the blood of goats, not by the blood of calves, but by By his own blood and through it he obtained eternal, not temperamental, not conditional, not in a little bit, not for a little while, eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of flesh. He said, if goats and cows and bulls bring us salvation, bring us uh, a forgiveness for sins for a while, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? Cleanse our consciences. It said it couldn't cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. Christ did. And could he do it from dead works so that we can serve the living God? He says, listen, all that stuff in the past was pointing to Christ. We have to understand that our sin is serious. That's what the whole tabernacle was set up for. It was serious that our sin separated us from God. It's not a small thing, your sin. It's not a little thing, your sin. It's a serious thing. And the work of the high priest gave us a picture of what Christ was going to do. In fact, his last week was like a week of preparation for the Yom Kippur. He began a week early. He stayed up all night, the night before it was to happen. He wasn't clothed in rich garments. He was stripped. The only garment he had, instead of being cheered on, he was jeered by the crowd. He wasn't bathed in pool. He was bathed in human spit. He didn't receive words of encouragement. His father turned his back on him. But he put away our sin forever. Because he was the perfect savior, the perfect sacrifice. And just like the high priest wore the 12 stones to represent the people of God on his chest, he had you in his heart. The lampstand pointed that Jesus is the light of the world. The showbread that Jesus is the bread of life. The curtain was torn the moment he was crucified. And the mercy seat is where the blood of Jesus, the heavenly mercy seat, is where the blood was sprinkled for our forgiveness. He is our scapegoat. And because of that, you and I, those of us that believe in Jesus Christ, we have unlimited access to the Father. And His blood is unlimited in its effectiveness to wipe away our guilt and our shame and our sin. It is only through the blood of Jesus that your guilt problem can be changed. It is only through the blood of Jesus that your guilt problem can be washed away. Now, my question for you today is, have you let that happen? Have you accepted the forgiveness of Jesus Christ for your sins? And if you have, why are you still holding on to the things that you've done that you feel guilty about? Release them to him. And if you're still sinning intentionally, then wise up and return to the Savior and ask for forgiveness. No, we're going to have time of response. I'm going to ask you to respond. I'm going to ask you to do whatever God calls you to do. Let's pray together.